The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for July 2nd, 2021. Happy Independence Day, America. It's your boy, Justin Robert Young, joining you in Austin, Texas. A little bit later in the show, we're going to give you the infrastructure uh, uh, interview of all infrastructure interviews. We got our boy, Bill Share. Washington Monthly, one of our faves, back on the program discussing everything we've seen, what's going on right now, where the fault lines of power lie, and whether or not, as I have projected, the progressives are going to be left holding the bag yet again. We are also going to go over a... a uh, just bizarre story that popped up this week regarding the New York City Board of Elections. I was up there. I covered that race. And then all of a sudden, on Tuesday, we find out that not only is the second place candidate, Maya Wiley, eliminated by way of ranked choice voting, but the second place candidate, the one for whom... I, I I walked up and down Sunset Park with you heard on this show. Catherine Garcia was not only in second place, but was two percentage points away from winning the damn thing with ballots yet to be cast. And then chaos breaks loose. We will discuss all of that. Indeed, it's what we're going to do now. But first. So, all of a sudden, news breaks. Garcia is within striking distance of Eric Adams. That means... That when you break down all of the the, the rank choice uh, stuff, I'm going to simplify this. But once you've got all the first place votes, that's there. Eric Adams got, has, has a 10% lead. That's usually insurmountable. It would take everybody who didn't vote for Eric Adams to either rank him lower than Catherine Garcia or not rank him at all for him to lose a 10% lead of first-choice ballots. It's usually bulletproof. So, it's no surprise that Garcia jumped Wiley. Many projected that to happen. It is a surprise that she came as close to Eric Adams, that she erased essentially like a a 10% deficit from where she was to get to where Adams was. Now, what the Adams campaign was shocked by 
is that the numbers that were released by the New York City Board of Elections had a hundred thousand more votes than they had expected. A six-digit increase is not usual. And initially, the Board of Elections doubled down on their findings, saying, hey, look, the first uh, place numbers that we put out, that was only 96% of precincts reporting. The other 4%, turns out they had more votes than we thought. And then they backtracked. The Board of Elections in New York City, an organization now entrusted to do the more complicated business of counting rank choice voting that have said that they will not have an official count on who the Democratic nominee for mayor is until well into July, botched the count and admitted it. They said that the numbers they released publicly included 135,000 ballots that were initially included in a test of the system. This obviously opened up the gates of hell. Quote, yet again, the fundamental structural flaws of the Board of Elections are on display, said outgoing Mayor Bill de Blasio. There must be an immediate, complete re-canvassing of the BOE's vote count and a clear explanation of what went wrong. The record number of voters who turned out in this election deserve nothing less. Oh, by the way, let me go ahead and, and, and correct my record based on my coverage before. This wound up turning out to be a fairly high turnout election. So while we didn't see a lot of outward uh a lot of outward signs of support, a lot of people went and voted. Here's what Eric Adams said, quote, "Today's mistake by the Board of Elections was unfortunate. It is critical that New Yorkers are confident in their electoral system, especially as we rank votes in a citywide election for the first time." Garcia, the greatest beneficiary of this, went on to say, quote, New Yorkers want free and fair elections, which is why we are overwhelmingly uh, voting to enact ranked choice voting. The BOE's release of incorrect ranked choice votes is deeply troubling and requires a much more transparent and complete explanation. Every ranked choice and absentee vote must be counted accurately so that all New Yorkers have faith in our democracy and government. I'm confident that every candidate will accept the final result and support whomever the voters have elected. <laughs> but again, the, the, the numbers and, and the, the initial Eric Adams quote was very pointed and very critical of the Board of Elections. And here's why. Adams, based on that count, was at 51.1% and Garcia was at 48.9% after Maya Wiley was eliminated. So now the Board of Elections is going to release another version of this. As of the time of this recording, it has not come out. I am assuming that they are double, triple, and quadruple checking, but I would encourage you to go to your computer and, and try to see what the latest numbers here are. 
Eric Adams, by the way, has now filed a lawsuit against the Board of Elections. Quote, the Adams campaign. Today, we petitioned the court to preserve our rights to a fair election process and to have a judge oversee and review ballots if necessary. We are notifying the other campaigns of our lawsuit through personal services required by law because they are interested parties. We invite the other campaigns to join us and petition the court so we can all seek a clear and trusted conclusion to this election. So now they are calling in the adults to make sure that whatever happens out of the BOE is something that they can all bank on. I've got one media note to get us out of here on this. In a few of the stories, because Big Chungus, Donald Trump, weighed in on this, he went on his mailing list and said that, oh, the Board of Elections conducted yet another hoax and a scam. You got a lot of media copy uh, essentially saying that, oh, what happened with the Board of Elections is going to feed in to baseless narratives by the right. I really believe that we need to decouple these things. Regardless of whatever you think of of, of everybody out there in Arizona counting pieces of paper and pretending like it's going to matter. Whatever you think about Donald Trump. Whatever you think about the Diebold uh, uh, voting conspiracies of 2004. Whatever you think about Mayor Daley giving the White House to John F. Kennedy. Like, let's all understand that elections are fallible, that they are run by humans. And very often when you are talking about the gatekeeping mechanisms of power, there are people that are going to try and put their thumb on the scale. The goal here is not to say that all elections are infallible. The goal here is to say, put up proof that something happened or we got to move on. Them's the rules of democracy. The Board of Elections made an admission that they screwed up. I am encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by the fact that they didn't just try to hide 135,000 votes so they could spare themselves the embarrassment of it. But I also think that we should understand that mistakes happen. And yes, fraud happens every once in a while. But you have to, have to separate this from any kind of larger political narrative, in my opinion. Not only you, the listener, in your heart, you need to do this. But specifically from the media perspective, you don't need to make this a national issue. It can be a citywide issue in New York City, and that's what I'd love to see it continue to be. You can support this show by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, sign up at the $3 level. Greatly appreciated for everybody who does that. Uh, get the bonus podcast on Sunday night at midnight uh, or Monday morning, rather, at midnight. Get the late edition, our Thursday edition of the podcast 
uh, at the $3 level. Thank you guys for supporting me. Uh, thanks. I mean, I think that, that watching stories uh, like like the BOE stuff is richer now that we kind of have a sense of this podcast on who Catherine Garcia is. And you guys paid for my ability to head out there. But I'm going to again use this segment to please encourage everybody who has not listened to my brand new Dog and Pony Show audio production, World's Greatest Con. Go listen to that everywhere that you get podcasts. It is uh, something that I've been very, very proud of, and I'm very excited for people to continue listening to it. Uh, it is four episode uh, first season. All of them are out now. So especially for your uh, big July 4th weekends, a lot of people are doing road trips. Go ahead and cue those up. It's a nice little three hours, uh, uh, basically, where where you can uh, listen to an awesome story, well told, at least in my opinion. Go ahead, greatestconpodcast.com. Our guest today is a writer for Washington Monthly and one of our favorite voices, specifically in the world of understanding the real politic of House and Senate politics, the one and only Bill Share. Welcome to the show, Bill. Always great to talk to you. Uh... So we we did not go over infrastructure uh, on on our Wednesday show because I wanted to save it for our conversation here today. Uh, uh, this has been, you know, uh, we are on the dark side of the moon in 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 the political world, right? Like we are a, more than a year away from the election that people normally don't care about, uh, and 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 now this is when theoretically, because we are so far away from elections. This is when you can actually get policy done. Uh, infrastructure has been the white whale, uh, comically so through the Trump administration. But even before that, a big infrastructure deal is something that a lot of people have wanted. Now it seems like we have a bipartisan uh, framework for it. But there is some conflict on the Democratic side of exactly how this is going to pass, whether it's going to pass with a reconciliation bill, when the reconciliation bill is going to pass. So so as somebody who's, whose mind I really respect on watching all this play out, what do you find to be the biggest obstacle between right now as we speak and any kind of infrastructure bill passing? Well, it's this whole question of linkage. Uh, it, 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 how will the sequencing of a of the bipartisan deal and a separate partisan reconciliation deal? Just for folks who don't already know, uh, reconciliation is a procedure uh, that's intended only for budgetary items, and under Senate rules, cannot be filibustered. So it gives you the the opportunity. Uh, to pass something on a straight majority vote in this in, in, a, in a partisan vote, uh, so it was already understood that even amongst Republicans, the Democrats were going to pass something through reconciliation. Yeah, 
but they really and, don't and have. Like they, they have already once with the COVID uh, uh, bill. They they were they were going to get at least one more bite at that apple, maybe two, depending on on what the parliamentarian has said. Yes, and we have quotes from Mitch McConnell and quotes from Portman, who's part of the group of uh, group of twenty one, saying they know that this was you know weeks ago that they know a reconciliation bill is coming. So they're, they're, the fact that it's happening at all is not upsetting to them. What the Republicans don't like is the idea that you have linked the two bills because then if they vote for it, they vote for the bipartisan deal. Even yeah. they don't normally vote for the reconciliation bill, they can be tagged for abetting it. Yes. And they can get yelled at in their home districts and states. They might attract a primary challenge. They might get harangued by Donald Trump. Uh, so they want some, at least some cosmetic separation between the two bills. Whereas on the progressive side, there seems to be a lack of trust that they could do the bipartisan bill first and get a robust reconciliation bill after. And so you had Nancy Pelosi say a few days before the deal was formally announced. Uh, that she would hold a bipartisan bill that passed the Senate and wait until a reconciliation bill passed before putting it on the floor. And then when Biden says, oh, this is a tandem proposition, yeah. I won't sign it if anyone comes to my desk, he sounded like he was in lockstep with Pelosi. That made Republicans deeply upset. Biden then walks that back and says, I didn't mean to, to do a veto threat. But he's still ambiguous about what he thinks the sequencing should be or just basically says it's not up to me. It's up to yes. Congress. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, um, they will. They will get the bill on my desk. Let's let's focus here on that walk back because it was fairly immediate in the world of politics, specifically by the office of the president. It was less than 48 hours later that he goes from saying if the two bills are not on my desk, I'm not signing the bipartisan one, which as far as veto threats seems to be uh, about as cut and dry as you can get to him saying, well, I, I never meant to say that. Well, actually not, because if Biden did not sign it. Yeah, it would still be it would still become law. Because it was passed by. Uh, you, have, you, have ten, you, you have 10 days to sign. You can let a bill become law without signing it. It's only a so-called pocket veto if it's the end of a legislative session okay. and the legislative session runs out. Uh, so in, in theory, it's actually a very hollow threat. I'm not going to sign it if it comes to my desk. So what? It's still law. Gotcha. I, don't know if it's, I don't know if that was literally what was in Biden's mind at the time. Well, I mean, I guess that was that was my big thing was that when I first saw him do that, it struck me as fairly muscular for him and also like uh, something that a creature of the Senate would do. He he knows <laughs> when it's time to apply pressure, when it's not. He's been there forever. I, I've always thought that if there was one thing we were going to get out of the Biden presidency, it's something that happens in the Senate and it would probably be bipartisan because he knows how these things are made. Uh, so, I, wow, that's interesting. I hadn't even uh, thought of that. The idea that that might have been a rhetorically <laughs> strong, but ultimately procedurally empty statement there to kind of because uh, because he's pleasing the progressives there on, on yeah. in that initial statement. Right. By, by saying real, we, we, the, we are not going to leave this reconciliation bill behind. And the real issue is not what comes to his desk. It's what the House is going to let come to his desk. Yeah. Uh, which that statement didn't really weigh in on directly. Yeah, uh, but did alienate Republicans in terms of uh, alienating their key ally here because they don't really have, I mean, they can deal with Schumer, but 
Pelosi is is her own uh, in, in her own world, and I feel like those ten Senate Republicans are are there for Biden. They they are they 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 do have faith that they can make a deal with him and him saying, oh no, wait, we're gonna because I'll, I'll guarantee you this: if both of them pass together, the 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 banners that Biden would be speaking in front of would not be you know, in, in two different colors on either side. He wouldn't hold two different rallies about the bipartisan bill and then the reconciliation bill. It would just be, I got it done, Joe Biden on jobs, and he would talk about all the things that happened. Well, here's what's confusing to me. There's all this huffing and puffing about sequencing yeah. and about linkage. We don't have any bills at all right now. Yes. There's no bill that has been written. <laughs> they still have to write the legislative language for the bipartisan deal. So that's farther along. Yes. In reconciliation, there's not even agreement amongst the Democrats how big that bill should be. And you know, Bernie was talking six trillion. Um, some Democrats were talking four trillion. Manchin said the other day, you know, probably one, 1.52 trillion. John Tester said four trillion is too much. Uh, so, I mean, the real action right now yeah. is what is, well, actually there's, there's potentially two things. I, I don't expect this, but just, to, and I think we might've talked about this in the last, one of the last times I was on yeah. to do a reconciliation bill, you have to pass a budget resolution first. Yes. A budget resolution is not law. It does not go to the president, but it's sort of like a, a framework and a guideline for your uh, your top line budget numbers. And then within that, you can have reconciliation instructions to specific you know delineated committees who then write reconciliation bills that get packaged together. Yeah. Uh, so the plan was to pass a resolution in July, theoretically. If you had a handful of Democratic moderates that didn't like what Pelosi is doing here, they could just not pass the resolution. Yeah. Now, I, now again, I don't. I'm not expecting that. I think it's probably more provocative than they, that they want to do. But just keep in mind, like progressives have leverage here, and moderates have leverage here. Uh, so they have to they have to get the resolution done. And in that and in that resolution, mind you, does have the top line. Yeah. So the negotiation about how big this is going to be is in effect being decided in that process. And we don't know how long that negotiation is going to take. I mean, that's what's just barely getting started right now. Uh, so we don't really know if we're in a situation where the two bills, I mean, we talk about two tracks. Yeah. Are these tracks moving at the same pace? Yes. We don't really know that right now. So if, I mean, if, if, I'm, if I want the bipartisan bill done, if I'm in the group of 10 who's actually working on the language, I would say to ourselves, hey, guys, let's go, go, let's go, get this done. go, 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 roads, <laughs> bridges, tunnels and broadband. Let's let's get it on the president. Let's get it to the House at least right. as fast as possible. And then hammer Pelosi for not passing what right. is uh, what the president wants. Because you could say, look, this is done. You're yeah. not done. Yeah. <laughs> Don't hold this up. Don't have this real benefit just because you're playing some some, you know, uh, some shell game here. And and so the other part of this is. You know, which faction of the Democratic Party has the most leverage? They all have some leverage. Yes. You know, when you have narrow majorities, almost every individual person has leverage. Yeah. Uh, but who can hold their position the longest? You know, it's a, it's a game of chicken. It's a staring contest. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, right now, Pelosi says, I'm 
I am going to do reconciliation first and bipartisan deal second. And so some people say, you know, Pelosi is a badass. You don't mess with Nancy Pelosi. Uh, if she says it, she means it. Uh, or she knows that the left is so firm that she has to do this. Yeah. And look, if you follow my work, I have been a Pelosi stan for longer <laughs> than anybody. I was sticking up for Pelosi when it was not cool to stick up for Pelosi. Yeah. And I have enormous respect for her skills. But one of those skills is bringing progressives along to do things that they don't want to do. Yeah. And uh, there was a time not too long ago, part of a bill that you might have heard of called the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the se September 2009, she said the House will only pass a bill with a robust public option. Yeah. Uh, and then the next month, she actually scaled the strength of the public option, made it kind of weaker uh, on the presumption the Senate was going to meet them halfway yep. and had to twist some arms to get that done. Even Dennis Kucinich, who was on the far left of the caucus, voted no on that bill in October of maybe the vote was, maybe the vote was November. Um, then the Senate does their bill and says, guess what? No public option at all. Yeah. And by March of 2010, Pelosi says, hey, guys, we did our best here. We fought the good fight, but the votes aren't there. We got to swallow this up public option. Uh, that is a that, that's in Pelosi's wheelhouse to do that. Now, look, it may be that the left of the party now wants to play a tougher game of hardball. That I can't predict to you. Uh, but I do know one, just because Pelosi said this today doesn't mean the position holds tomorrow. And the other thing is, historically speaking, it is harder for a Democrat in a rock rib Democrat district to go against the president yeah. than it is for a Democrat in a swing district or, or a red district. Uh, so, you know, Joe, if, 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 Joe, if Joe Biden calls him Joe Manchin yeah. and says, hey, guy, my presidency is at stake. I need you to vote for this fortune dollar reconciliation bill. Jumanji might say, I hear that, but sorry, I, I'm in West Virginia. I don't have to listen to you. Yeah. Uh, but we know, just to give you a specific example here, 1993, Bill Clinton's tax increase was on a knife's edge passing the House. He calls up Pat Williams, who's the congressperson from Montana, you know, still a relatively conservative area, uh, and says to Pat Williams, literally, my presidency is at stake. Yeah, uh, that is a heavy thing for a president to say to a fellow party member. And I, I grant you, you know, you know, maybe it works on a Joe Manchin. I'm, I'm just saying Joe Manchin can more easily resist that. Yeah. That someone who was in a Democratic area. And Pat Williams wasn't even in the Democratic area, mind you, but he still was influenced by that and 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 cast a, a deciding vote. Uh, so, you know, where does Biden lean at the end of the day? Who's going to hold the harder line? What are we and what are we even talking about in this bill? You know, yeah. there's so many variables here that's hard to know exactly how it all shakes out. So let's 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 break this down because I think we've now kind of brought into stark relief what the actual conflict is. And it's not with the Republicans. It is between the Joe Mansions and Bernie Sanders and then with the other on, on the other side with Nancy Pelosi in the House trying to to juggle a very insurgent and entrenched progressive wing against the rest of her party, including the fact that in a year and change, a lot of these people are going to be up for elections and they are going to have to defend major votes like these uh, when they go out and ask for their jobs back. So let's 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 focus on this reconciliation bill, because the six trillion dollars, this was the one thing in my in my Patreon episode that I put out 
uh, after watching all the Sunday shows. I'm like, here's the one thing you can be sure of. We're not going to hear the word six trillion much throughout the rest of the week because the six trillion figure was there in case there was no bipartisan deal on the other half of it. So that was uh, at the very least, even for Bernie Sanders, it would be five trillion, you know, uh, uh, to take away for the for the trillion that's being spent bipartisan. The question now becomes. Can Joe Manchin and Bernie Sanders agree on what a reconciliation package looks like? And and that's that's the biggest thing that I think you're totally right on. If Nancy Pelosi is like, hey, look, I'm going to say I'll pass the the, the reconciliation uh, package before I do the bipartisan one, then it might very well be leveraged to to say when the bipartisan bill shows up to to a progressive caucus, guys, get it done. Get it done and get it to me, and then I'll and then I'll do it. But in, in the meanwhile, it's going to be really, really hard for me to be the one who's uh, uh, holding holding this up while while Joe Manchin and Bernie Sanders argue about what the priorities of America are because they're not going to agree ideologically, and I don't know if they'll agree fiscally. Well, number one, you know Pelosi's demand was not uh, monetarily specific. Yeah. She didn't say, give me a reconciliation bill. That's a minimum $4 trillion. She said, give me a reconciliation yes, bill. a reconciliation bill. Yeah. Right. Um, Bernie has compromised before. You know, he, he does take the occasional vote against the Democratic Party, you know, from the left. Uh, he sometimes is crosswise with the purposes of the president. He, you know, he didn't like the, you know, the tax cut compromise that Obama did in 2010, for example. But he crafted VA reform, Veterans Administration reform with John McCain, even though it was not, uh, even though it had some privatizing elements to it, yeah. uh, because Bernie has been a legislator in his day. Yeah. Uh, and Bernie has already said, uh, if $6 trillion is too high for the moderates, we can talk. He, he's already sent that signal. Uh, and just to, to circle back to something you said before, the Republicans are not a non-factor here. Remember, there are people that want a bipartisan deal. There are people that want, I think, on its own accord, because they want to show that bipartisanship can still work, that the country can work together, that we're not so divided. I think there's people who genuinely believe that, even though that that kind of logic drives the left nuts. There are also people running for re-election in 2022 who are in Red areas, Democrats in red areas, not a lot. Yeah. Uh, but you have about seven House Democrats in Trump one districts. You got a handful more who uh, just barely won their races in 2020 that have a pretty robust Republican faction. And if turnout power is different in 2022 than 2020, you better get some of those right leading votes. They want to have a bipartisan win under their belt. They don't want to go into the elections with only a, a partisan record. There's a school of thought that that doesn't matter. Yeah, that this, this what you deliver matters and the procedure doesn't matter. But not every Democrat believes that. I mean, it may be minority Democrats, but enough to that you need them. Uh, so there are definitely people that don't want Republicans to walk away. Uh, now, maybe Republicans did walk away illegitimately. Maybe a mansion in the cinema might say, hey, you guys move the goalposts. Screw you, buddy. We're going to go do four trillion now. Yeah, <laughs> we tried to work with you. We tried to restrain it, but you didn't. You didn't. You, 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 you knocked the rug out from under us. But if that doesn't happen and you got people saying we negotiated this deal, we want a bipartisan deal. The president wants a bipartisan deal. And if that means restraining the amount in the reconciliation bill 
so that they don't feel this is some giant bait and switch, well, then you're going to have to accept that too, or yeah. else you don't have our votes for anything. Uh, again, I can't know if they're going to put things that bluntly, but we we do know at minimum that Manchin is out there saying, I want to restrain the size of this. And we don't know yet if there's going to be a faction left saying there's a minimum. We're not going to go below. Uh, although although and, and, that, that, that has been a constant refrain for Manchin, right? Like like Man- Manchin uh, specifically since the, the Democrats have gotten the control of the Senate by the th- slimmest of all possible margins, his, his kind of constant refrain is we need to rein in the cost of X. Well, you want, I mean, some people get very hung up on the mansion said earlier on that he could do he could do up to four trillion in infrastructure. Yeah. To think that deep down mansion is not a tightwad. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he's a populist in, in some respect. West Virginia is not it's it's red, but it's not it's it's not it's a weird red. Yeah. Uh, and so they would just like a lot of money spent on infrastructure. But Manchin, see, and not just Manchin, mind you, I think there's a there's a larger number of Democratic moderates in the Senate that genuinely care about the deficit. They worry that they they spent a lot in the American Rescue Plan already. Yeah. Uh, and they want things paid for. So they, they don't mind spending the money. But if you can pay for it at the same time, they don't love every aspect of Biden's corporate tax hikes and want to limit those as well. You know, Manchin said the other day on Meet the Press Let's see how much we can raise in revenue, and then that will be what we spend on things. Yeah. Uh, and let me just point out one other wrinkle here that I think is important. Child tax credit expansion. Yeah. That was part of the rescue plan. That was sold as like a signature legacy achievement. This is going to slash child poverty. Yes. Uh, checks are coming in the mail starting in July. Those checks expire after December. So if it's going to be an historical achievement, they need to extend the program. Yeah. It is an expensive program. It is a hundred billion dollars a year. So if you're extending for five years, that's a half trillion by itself. Yeah. Uh, And if you go beyond that, actually the, the amount in the tax credit statutorily decreases further because in the Trump tax reform, there was the bump up in the child tax credit, which goes away. 2026. Gotcha. So you're going to keep it level beyond the five years. It's not a hundred billion dollars. It's like $187 billion. Yeah. Uh, and so is it, so is this reconciliation bill, is it a five-year bill? Is it an eight-year bill? Is it a 10-year bill? That matters as far as how much is getting eaten up by the child tax credit, which seems to be a top priority for, for most Democrats. Uh, so if you're doing that, that makes it a lot harder to do robust investments in other things. Uh, so it's complicated. And I can't tell you exactly how it's all going to shake out, but there does seem to be a genuine interest, not just Manchin, but perhaps Mark Warner, perhaps Angus King, uh, John Tester, to pay for their spending. Yeah. And that is an inherent constraint on how much they will spend. So those last uh, few names that you mentioned, I'm glad you did, because I I want folks who are listening to keep them in mind as you you tend to hear about you know the Senate moderates most famously Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema they tend to be I think the mascots for some quieter moderate senators who I I think they are representing and and I, I would yeah, I would they've been the heat shields yes you know, especially Manchin I mean it 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 drives Democrats nuts that Cinema is playing that role too because she's in a purple state not a red state and they think that she's not being politically savvy but she's clearly made a call that this is a purple state. Yes. 
that I need to be in the middle to survive in this state. And I'm willing to go as far as to make overt defenses of the filibuster yeah. uh, to defend my position. And I think there are people, you know, it's, it's hard to do political analysis that's removed from your own priors. And again, and I have a problem with it. We all have a problem with it. Yeah. Uh, if you tell yourself it is so illogical to be for the filibuster. Why would you constrain yourself in that way? Why would you yeah. dilute your agenda? You have you you support popular things, and so just get them done. Like and I, I got a Machiavellian streak in me too, so I totally get that logic. Uh, and so people thought, you know, once Mansion and Cinema see how difficult the Republicans are and obstructionists that they're being, they'll give up this ridiculous filibuster argument because that makes no sense. But if you have a different perspective on things, whether it is your genuine view of how government should work or your political uh, incentives, you're going to have a different take on it. And I think it's very clear by now that Manchin and some have a very different take on it. And if you, if you actually want to pass stuff, you have to deal with that reality. And, I, and other Democrats have said things about you know fiscal responsibility and paying for stuff. And then you got to take that seriously. Some people's positions don't hold. You know, yeah. I grant that as well. So you do want to sort of test these propositions, not take everything at, at face value, but some of them do hold. And you have to, once you come to that realization, you got to work around that. My biggest thing about the filibuster is like, are, did we totally forget that that was exactly what Trump wanted a couple of years ago? Like that he was yelling at Mitch McConnell on Twitter to get rid of the filibuster. Like, like we same thing, the exact same thing. And that's, you know, I, I, I almost wish that we, we had some like headlines where it's like, you know, some of the folks that are as, as aggressively calling for the end of it. It's like echoing Trump, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez calls for the end of filibuster. You know, it, it just seems like it, it totally feels like a different thing. Uh, uh, you know, depending on on which party is gunning for it. Well, if you allow me to make a, a bit of a broader point here, because I do sometimes you wonder if you're a political pundit, like why you why you bother? Like what's the <laughs> what is the point of this profession? What's the point of political analysis? Why, why do we like, even why are we even remembering things that happened more than six months ago? Because you I, might I mean, as well just have a goldfish brain. I mean, is this just like, you know, sports commentary where you say so-and-so's got a seven-point handicap and then they lose and they win by 20 points and your opinion was totally meaningless and yeah. it's all just Oh, that means that they have the guts. It's because right. they had they had, they, they, they had the fire. They, they dug down deep. But here, here's why it does matter, because bad political analysis leads to bad strategic decisions yes. and misaligned expectations. Uh, and... To a lot of uh, Democrats, progressive Democrats, and some, and some maybe not so progressive, but more partisan, uh, they had a presumption uh, that uh, it makes the most political sense uh, to go big, to be partisan, to junk the filibuster, uh, rant everything you can in reconciliation, all that stuff, uh, and if that's not the political analysis that is held by other people, yeah, uh, uh, you're going to be, you know, not just confused but demoralized. You know, why is this happening? Yeah, <laughs> why are why are these decisions being made? Uh, and uh, and that's where you got to get out of your own priors as much as possible. I mean, again, that doesn't mean like that I'm right or manager or cinema's right, uh, but. If you're if you're going on the presumption that things are going to happen a certain way because it's just so obvious, yeah, uh, that leads to uh, party disunity, and this is a challenge for Democrats. You know, because right now, you know, take voting rights for example. Yeah, 
There are people on the Democratic side, I think this is an existential issue. And if Democrats can't ram through HR1, eliminate the filibuster, they're going to lose yeah. in 2022. Uh, and party leadership is not disabusing them of that, of that thinking. Yeah. Uh, and again, I'm not trying to say this is somehow a trivial issue that doesn't matter, uh, but uh, we've had voter ID laws in place before the Democrats overcame that. In fact, they've galvanized Democrats. Yeah. And, and there's academic research to show that voter ID laws backfire on the proponents and galvanize the targets. Yeah. Uh, and so if you tell yourself all is lost, you're creating party disunity and base demoralization, which is exactly what Democrats don't need if they want to, you know, pull off a minor miracle and gain seats in the midterms of 2022, which I don't think is implausible, but it requires party unity. It requires having reasonable expectations about what can be accomplished. Uh, and party leadership has a hard time talking straight with its base because they don't want to, you know, get into crossfire prematurely. Do you believe that we see a reconciliation package passed this year? I do. I mean, in part because I think that child tax credit piece is so crucial. Yeah. I mean, something that Biden thinks is necessary, he will move heaven and earth, heaven and earth to get. Yeah. I think he believes the bipartisan infrastructure deal is that crucial. Yeah. And I believe that child tax credit is that crucial and perhaps whatever you can get in addition to that. Uh, but it obviously is a very delicate dance because you do need to keep Republicans on board, you need to keep the moderates on board, and the Democratic Party need to keep the progressives on board. Uh, but I don't think he can just say, whoop, I didn't get that one. Because yeah. that is such a colossal failure. He's got to pull every lever he has in his kit to get something done on both tracks. By the end of it, where do you believe the power of the progressive wing of both the Senate and the House stands? Like, because the, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll fill in with just a little bit of my own opinion. It feels to me that at a certain point, they're going to be left being the ones who, and this is a position that they are familiar with, saying that they compromised too much and 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 that uh, uh, they, they did not get in this moment where they held the machine gun, they did not get to fire it in the way that they wanted to. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, I mean, I think, and it's just, it's just opinion now, I'm not saying this is yeah. an incontrovertible fact, yeah. I think the moderates still retain the better of the leverage. Now the progressive yeah. no leverage, uh, but I think moderates can hold out more than progressives can. I do think, you know, an AOC, Jamal Bowman, Ilan Omar, Rashid Tlaib, Corey Bush, uh, maybe Mondaire Jones, you know, those are folks who I think are willing to get nothing yes. to make the broader point. Uh, and in and of themselves, they would be enough to stop a bill from going through the house. But if you have 29 House Republicans in the Problem Solvers Caucus, and I mean, there are 29 in the Problem Solvers Caucus, they already pr proposed an infrastructure deal along the lines of what the Senate group came up with. Yeah. If you get those 29, now you need 33 Democrats willing to get nothing to kill everything. And I don't think they're that many. In the Democratic Party. Uh, and, and even those I mentioned it who are in the squad or squad adjacent, uh, I don't think they'd be representing their districts by going scorched earth. I, I think they are of enough of ideological um, uh, 
uh, depth, if you will, fervency, that they're willing to take the position regardless of what their constituents, constituents want. I, but I think almost every base Democratic voter is someone who wants to see Biden succeed. Yeah. And we know from past polling that about two thirds of Democrats like compromise on its own merit when they're asked yeah. in polls, do you want to see your leaders uh, compromise or do you want to see them stick to their positions? Um, it's been a two thirds proposition. Democrats want compromise, which is very different than Republicans. Republican yeah. voters are not in that same space. Uh, so I, I think it, moderates have a lot more to work with there as far as you know who's going to feel the most heat for holding out. You know, you can bring protests into West Virginia and you're not going to impress Joe Manchin very no. much. No, uh, but but Biden can say, I need this and can put heat on the progressive members, I think, more readily. Tell you what, though, if AOC did go scorched earth, that would be quite a way to start a conversation about a <laughs> primary challenge for the feckless Senate uh, majority leader in, in, in Chuck Schumer. <laughs> if some of those rumors are to be believed, uh, that would be interesting. It would. I mean, I if I'm AOC and we're getting farther and farther afield from what we're supposed to talk about. That's fine. We're at um, the end now. We can go we can go <laughs> into our big finish here. If you're AOC. You can run for president if you want to. You 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 have the donor network to run for president. You don't need to climb a ladder. Yeah, but that's not. I mean, that that could be in uh, uh, six years, literally, literally. When well, well yeah. I mean, if you want if you want to challenge Joe Biden in twenty twenty four, you can. If you want to challenge, no, Kamala she Harris wouldn't. She wouldn't. Run, it would be far more likely that you would challenge Chuck Schumer than challenge Joe Biden for the presidency. I I think. It's not. I mean, again, I can't speak for AOC. We are all. Yeah, this is all fan fiction that we're that we're right. now pitching right now. Why take the risk in challenging Schumer, who is probably unbeatable? I mean, New York is bigger than New York City, and New York City is even as left as we think it is. Witness yeah. what we know of the mayoral election. Granted, the, those votes aren't fully counted yet. Uh, but even still, I mean, the what it even seems that the progressive candidate Maya Wiley was only getting, you know in a quarter of the vote, if even that, uh, in, the, in, the, in the first choice. Uh, so, you know, Schumer is in a very good position to win re-election regardless of what, what happens. Yeah. Why take on that race and likely lose and have no elective position at all when you can at least hang out as House House member, you're probably not going to get beaten there in any primary challenge uh, and wait until you want to run for president, whether it's 2024 or 2028 or whatever, because running for president, win or lose, is a movement building proposition. It's a go big or go home proposition. Yes. And if you lose, you're still the leader of some larger Democratic socialist movement you can do till you know your last dying day. Uh, so I, I don't see the upside in running against Schumer, quite frankly. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with you that it would be tough sledding because, uh, uh, you know, uh, New York State is a who you know kind of state. And Chuck Schumer, there ain't a lot of people that he doesn't know. I, I, I think that there is it would be very, very hard for AOC. Uh, you know, Chuck, Chuck Schumer is not Joe Crowley, but uh, <laughs> uh, I do think she's ambitious. And like you said, she has nothing but money. Uh, uh, depending on whatever she wants to do. Although, I mean, I mean, Schumer's not a pauper. <laughs> no, no. Uh, and, and look, you know, Schumer's definitely trying to be as hardline progressive as possible. But, oh, I think and, because and, because he doesn't want to get primaried by yeah, he, he, he yeah. right have to go through that 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 process, and he's basically trying to outsource the annoying negotiations to Joe Manchin to Kirsten yeah. Cinema. 
But there comes a point where he's got to put the bill on the floor and he has yeah. to do the final deal. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, Schumer is a legislator, not an ideologue. Yeah, I'm also just wish casting here as I really just hope that we have a very interesting <laughs> midterm for my own sanity. Uh, Bill Share, Washington Monthly. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming back on. Uh, I would highly encourage everybody to read your most recent piece about a, uh, a an election uh, legislation compromise that I find so reasonable and practical <laughs> that it will almost assuredly never happen. Uh, but I, I thought I thought it was very well written and very well researched. So, uh, Bill, thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate that. Take care. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. The show is edited by Brett Stewart. A reminder that you can keep the reputation of our audience sterling and pristine if in the cesspool of hate that is Twitter, you head to px3guest.com. That'll bring you to Bill Shares Twitter and you let him know if you liked his interview. If you want to give us an email, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Still looking for a, a, a good mailbag questions. We're going to do a little bit more of an involved mailbag going forward uh, uh, where I'm just going to take a whole episode and just answer evergreen stuff that you guys have for me. Do a little research into it. Give a little bit of that dog and pony show sheen. My Twitter or sorry, the Twitter for the show is at px3tweets. My Twitch is px3live.com. The newsletter is px3newsletter.com. The podcast is px3podcast.com if you want to share it with a friend. And of course, get merch for this show at politicsmerch.com. If you would like to give us a direct payment one time, it is paypal.me slash payjury. Venmo is justin-young-20. And our cash app is px3cash. A lot of back and forth lately. A lot of votes that Venmo money is real. A lot of votes that Venmo money isn't real. Unlike the Board of Elections, I'm not going to rush a count here. So the, the, the polls are still open. If you want to let me know that Venmo money is or is not real, I'm open to all arguments. Just go ahead and put it in the notes of a payment to Justin-Young-20. If you'd like to send me anything physical, it is P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, you can always get the bonus content that I create each and every week at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That brings us to our Patreon. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. And the $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the podcast like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Headphones Neil, Dr. G, the other half of Whiskey Wednesday, Idris, the Government Unfiltered Podcast, 100 Mile Runner, Berkeley, Steven, Kathy Mac, Zombie Doc, D. Really, Methuselah, Honeyfuckle, The Gen, Middle Aged Mike, Doc Com Junkie, Calamity Zap, D. Laser, Lord Scale, De Quince, Anile III, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Utah, Jimmy Montana, Chad, David, Snuffies, Off Route 44. Charles, Olin and Angela, DL, 
Miranda, Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, just another pilot, Will, Frozen, Summers, Jay, Pink, and Andrew. One more time, you want to get your name read. It's just so simple. Head on over there and uh, join the $10 tier. Also, um, uh, I want to put it out there one more time. I will be giving a convocation speech for everybody who has graduated. Let's open it up to high school and college over the last uh, two years where there's not been an actual uh, <laughs> an actual like uh, 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 speeches or graduations for people. If you are a listener and you've graduated in the last two years, please go ahead and tell me where you went to school, what you majored in. We'll do our own little convocation here on PX3, uh, and I will give a little speech to you guys. It'll be a great time. Uh, do that at theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.